Howdy, everyone. Welcome to the Daily Covfefe on Unsafe Space. Uh, it's an impromptu live stream. Uh, I'm your host, Carter Laren. What's today? Tuesday, February 18th. Uh, I'm sure many of you will be disappointed, as I was, to learn that Carrie cannot join us today, which is why I'm doing an impromptu live stream. Uh, the topics that I wanted to talk about were really discussion topics um, with Carrie. So I thought instead of trying to film something, um, and then put it up later, I would just do a live stream with everyone and we can kind of have a chat while I talk about something that, um, while I talk about something that I've been thinking about a lot that's been disturbing to me, but I think it's kind of important for everyone to think about and know. Um, okay. How do I want to introduce this topic? Well, uh, I think I mentioned the other day I read uh, a short, it's just an article basically, um, called The Fate of Empires and Search for Survival. It was by a guy named Glub Pasha, uh, or Sir John Glub was his official name. And uh, he wrote this in the 70s. Now, he was, just so you know who this guy was, and the reason this is important, um, this is important because he talks, he did sort of what what I like to call maybe an empirical analysis of history. Um, I like his approach to history. And he came up with a model. You can argue whether it's correct or not, but there's certainly a lot of evidence for it um, about the rise and fall of civilizations, what the average lifespan of a civilization is, what stages a civilization goes through, um, what kind of people are in each stage. And the reason that I think it's very important, I think will become pretty clear uh, as I talk about it. So instead of asking everyone to read this book, I figured I would, or this article, I would walk through kind of what he talked about, and you guys can yell at me in chat if you're, I don't know, have other stuff you want to talk about or you have comments. I'll try and pay attention to chat, but it's just me, so um, it might be it might be a little bit different. The cutie, Daniel is asking, where is the cutie? I assume you don't mean me, because I'm right here, Daniel. Uh, no, the cutie is... Uh, AWOL today. <laughs> She's AWOL at the last minute, which is why we're doing a, uh, which is why we're doing a Kofefi Live. So um, let's get started. So John Club was just really quickly, he was born in um, the late, or late 1800s, 1897. His father was part of the Royal Engineers in the UK. He, so he grew up abroad, moving around, um, which gave him a, an interesting perspective. He ended up serving in World War II in France, or sorry, World War I in France. Um, and then he left, actually, to serve the Iraq uh, government. And then he commanded what was known as the Jordan Arab uh, Legion, which was, I guess, a well-known force at the time. Uh, after that, he went into retirement and wrote, I think, 16 or more books, um, mostly about the Middle East. And he had this goal, looking at history, um, of really trying to figure out why we don't learn from history. Uh, because we don't send, we, you know, we hear this all the time. History is doomed to repeat itself. People never learn from history. Um, and his goal was to really view history uh, empirically. And just as at the outset, let me say, I'm going to describe what he was talking about and his empirical analysis. Um, it's, not, it's a descriptive analysis. It's not normative. He's not saying this is the way things should be or these are right or this is better than that. He's just describing what he thinks does happen. Um, and I don't even agree with him on what he, some of the, the embedded, um, 
philosophy that he has in his description. So uh, I'm just I'm just relating his descriptive narrative, but I think it's very important um, because I think it will help us think about the times that we're in right now. And you'll see, I think you'll see striking parallels uh, between modern craziness and ancient civilizations in their death throes. So his goal for history was, he basically said, look, the reason we don't learn from history is, first of all, we tend to only learn about our particular region and like the history for our nation. And um, and that's often very biased. We tend to learn whether it's biased pro or against, depending on the factions in our country. We, we only learn biased history and we tend to only learn uh, about the high points in history and the, the kind of you know, successes and not the failures, especially of our, of our own um, culture. Or maybe we have a bias and we learn only about the failures of our own culture, depending. Uh, and so he, he thinks that history, we should have a more scientific approach. And I'm just going to, I'm going to quote him a few times here. It's, uh, it shouldn't be too heavy, but he writes well. So he says, physical science has expanded its knowledge by building on the work of its predecessors and by making millions of careful experiments, the results of which are meticulously recorded. Such methods have not yet been employed in the study of world history. Our piecemeal historical work is still mainly dominated by emotion and prejudice. Uh, now, that he was writing that in the 70s. I think it's even more true today. Then he writes, If we desire to ascertain the laws which govern the rise and fall of empires, the obvious course is to investigate the imperial experiments recorded in history and to endeavor to deduce from them any lessons which seems to be applicable to them all. So basically, let's do a study of empires in history. Um, and so he does. He compares uh, empires throughout history, and he uses the term empire to mean like a superpower, like a, a great, what we would call a superpower. Um, and, and he notes that many of the empires have been large land blocks. Some of them have overseas possessions, but not all of them. So here's a quick, let me just show you this. This is his little chart that he put together of the nations that he looked at throughout history. Um, everywhere, Assyria, starting with Assyria, uh, Persia, all the way down to um, Britain. And if you'll notice something about these, look at the duration in years for all of these. 247, 208, 231, 233, 207, 246, 267. They're all about 250-year lifespans. Um, and he found this fascinating, as do I. Um, he was wondering why that is. Um, Epistavus just asked, by the way, in chat, no Mongol Empire, no. And he specifically said, uh, and it's sad because I don't think this happened. He suggested, he was like, look, I know the Middle East. I can I can look at this from uh, the West perspective of the West and Middle East. I don't know uh, Asia very well. It would be great if, if historians would do a deeper dive on this and look at more diverse empires throughout history in all regions of the world. To my knowledge, no one ever actually did that, but I think it's a stellar suggestion. And if I was funding uh, history departments, that's a thing I would think about doing. So he does mention the Mongols, I think, once or twice in his article, but he doesn't have them here. Anyway, so we're looking at a 250-year lifespan, which he points out is about 10 generations of people. And he thought it, he has a very human-centric approach to this, which I like as well. Um, he He's basically saying, like, well, what happens to the evolution of human through this empire through you know over the course of these 10 generations um and what are the people like in each stage i'm gonna, I'm gonna have to stop and take drinks during this because i'm talking a lot 
All right. Stage one, there's only six stages just to give you a setup here. Stage one is uh, what he calls the outburst or age of pioneers. And this is when there's like some, you know, heretofore insignificant group of people that burst onto the world stage in some major way. Um, and he says, these are usually characterized by an extraordinary display of energy and courage. New conquerors are normally poor, hardy, and enterprising, and above all, aggressive. The decaying empires which they overthrow are wealthy, but defensive-minded. Uh, he also writes, other peculiarities of this period of the conquering pioneers are their readiness to improvise and experiment. Untrammeled by traditions, they will turn anything available to their purpose. If one method fails, they try something else. Uninhibited by textbooks or book learning, action is their solution to every problem. Poor, hardy, and often half-starved and ill-clad, they abound in courage, energy, and initiative, overcome every obstacle, and always seem to be in control of the situation. So if we look at the characteristics of people in this first stage, they're poor, hardy, enterprising, aggressive, not just in battle, but generally aggressive. They improvise and experiment. Um, as he mentioned, there's not a lot of tradition. They're very action-oriented. They have courage, energy, that kind of thing. So um, so that's the kind of people that you see. And, and you see that um, in different ways. Sometimes it's conquering uh, other major uh, empires. Sometimes it's conquering um, previously unconquered land or native populations or whatever it is, but that's that's kind of the the mentality and the character of the people that do this. Someone mentions it sounds like MS-13. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> it, it, I, I don't think he's saying that these are necessarily good all the time, but yes, it does sound a little, little bit like MS-13. Okay, so stage two is the conquest stage. So after this first stage where they, they do their outburst, um, I'm just going to read what he says. Um, After this is a period of amazing initiative and almost incredible enterprise, courage, and hardihood. These qualities often in a very short time produce a new and formidable nation. These early victories, however, are won chiefly by reckless bravery and daring initiative. The ancient civilization thus attacked will have defended itself by its sophisticated weapons and by its military organization and discipline. So these kind of what he's calling the barbarians or the, the, the outburst people, they're coming in and they're attacking a more sophisticated nation generally. Um, these barbarians quickly appreciate the advantages of these military methods and adopt them. As a result, the second stage of expansion in the new empire consists of more organized, disciplined, and professional campaigns. Um, and then he, he goes on to say this isn't just military. In other fields, the daring initiative of the original conquerors is maintained in geographical exploration, uh, for example, pioneering new countries, penetrating new forests, climbing unexplored mountains, and sailing uncharted seas. I'm not sure how that translates to the 21st century because there's not really anything uncharted. But um, he says in this stage, the initiative, aggressive energy from previous state, this previous stage remains, but because the population wasn't bogged down with tradition and more, and they're more pragmatic and adaptable, they're able to kind of quickly figure out how to use these tools from the people that they. Uh, conquered. All right, so that's stage two. Stage three is commercial expansion, and this kind of makes sense, right? Once you've conquered a bunch of territory, um, suddenly commerce can happen more quickly among different territories and uh, around, you know, between more people than could have prior to the conquest. So um, once you've done that, you've got lots more land, you've got a unified government, and um, 
He writes, both merchants and goods can be exchanged over considerable distances. Moreover, if the empire be an extensive one, it will include a variety of climates, producing extremely varied products, which the different areas will wish to exchange with one another. So this all makes sense. You've got, uh, this is the kind of the idea behind the EU, right? It was like having some kind of, I'm, I'm not a fan of the EU, but this was their idea as they wanted to have easier commerce between nations, or that's the ostensible idea. I don't think that's actually what they wanted, but... Um, and he writes, the proud military traditions, so the, the military traditions of the first two stages, they still hold sway, and the great armies guard the frontiers, but gradually the desire to make money seems to gain hold of the public. During the military period, glory and honor were the principal objects of ambition. To the merchant, such ideas are but empty words which add nothing to the bank balance. So, so then he writes, with the wealth which seems almost without effort to pour into the country enables the commercial classes to grow immensely rich. So how do, how do they spend all this money? Well, that becomes a problem for them. So they start spending on art, architecture, luxur uh, luxury. Um, they, pat they patronize a lot of the arts. Um, they build municipal buildings, infrastructure, um, lots of beautiful things. He writes, the rich merchants build themselves palaces and money is invested in communications, highways, bridges, railroads, or hotels according to the varied patterns of the ages. And, and he says this first half of this age of commerce actually seems to be pretty, pretty cool. It's particularly splendid, he says. Um, the ancient virtues of courage, patriotism, and devotion to duty are still in evidence. The nation is proud, united, and full of self-confidence. Boys are still required, first of all, to be manly, to ride, to shoot straight, and to tell the truth. Um, it is remarkable what emphasis is placed at this stage on the manly virtue of truthfulness, for lying is cowardice, the fear of facing up to the situation. By the way, there's a there's a book that I read a while ago, um, aptly named To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth by Colonel Jeff Cooper, which I recommend. Uh, the short book if anyone wants to read it. Anyway, uh, he writes, boys' schools are intentionally rough, frugal eating, hard living, breaking the ice to have a bath, and similar customs are aimed at producing a strong, hardy, and fearless breed of men. Duty is the word constantly drummed into the heads of young people. The age of commerce is also marked by great enterprise in the exploration for new forms of wealth. Daring initiative is shown in the search for profitable enterprises in far corners of the earth, perpetuating to some degree the adventurous courage of the age of conquest. So here we go. That that's the you can kind of think about that as the that the age of conquest people now turn their attention to commerce. Um, so Maria writes, the internet is the uncharted sea. Uh, that's why you're brilliant, Maria. That is an excellent point. I was thinking Mars. Internet's a much better example. <laughs> um, okay, so then we move on to stage four. Stage four is what he calls the age of affluence. Um, and by the way, I'm, I've already said that this is descriptive and not normative. I am going to make a, another statement here. I'm not against money. I don't think the love of money is the root of all evil, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so... But he's got his viewpoint here. He says, There does not appear to be any doubt that money is the agent which causes the decline of the strong, brave, and confident people. The decline in courage, enterprise, and a sense of duty, however, is gradual. Okay, so he's saying, like, you know, this is a, it's a slow decline. They start with these things. The first direction with wealth, in which wealth injures the nation is a moral one. Money replaces honor and adventure as the objective of the best young men. Moreover, men do not normally seek to make money for their country or their community, but for themselves. 
Gradually and almost imperceptibly, the age of affluence silences the voice of duty. The object of the young and the ambitious is no longer fame, honor, or service, but cash. Education undergoes the same gradual transformation. No longer do schools aim at producing brave patriots ready to serve their country. Parents and students alike seek the educational qualifications which will command the highest salaries. Um, so, and he actually cites um, someone from 1058, Arab, an Arab from 1058, uh, Ghazali, who complains, using these very same words, that saying uh, there's a lowering of objectives in the declining Arab world. Students, he says, no longer attend college to acquire the learning and virtue, but to obtain those qualifications which enable them to grow rich. The same situation is everywhere evident among us in the West today, he writes. Um, and he also points out that um, all, he says all these in all these nations, this period um, has the same kind of characteristics. The immense wealth accumulated in the nation dazzles the onlookers. That's certainly been true for the U.S. Uh, enough of the ancient virtues of courage, energy, and patriotism survive, patriotism survive to enable the state successfully to defend its frontiers. But beneath the surface, greed for money is gradually replacing duty and public service. Indeed, the change might be surmised as being from service to selfishness. Uh, again, I don't like his definition of selfishness. We can have a philosophic discussion about that another day. But at this point, what happens, something happens in, in that kind of initial aggression switches to defensiveness, right? So um, they, you know, once their nation gets rich, it's not really interested in um, expanding or um, what he calls glory or duty, but it's really just focused on retaining the wealth and luxury. Um, and he cites some examples, the Great Wall of China, Hadrian's Wall on the Scottish border, uh, Maginot Line in France in 1939. The, the idea is we need to maintain our, our wealth. So that's the fourth stage. All right, fifth stage. This one hits home. Uh, as, does, as does the next stage, unfortunately. The fifth stage he calls the Age of Intellect. And, and this is because uh, you've gained so much wealth at this point that, he writes, it's no longer needed to supply the mere necessities or even the luxuries of life. Ample funds are available also for the pursuit of knowledge. Um, the merchant princes of the age of commerce seek fame and praise, not only by endowing works of art or patronizing music and literature. They also found and endowed colleges and universities. It is remarkable with what regularity this phase follows on that of wealth an empire after empire, divided by many centuries. So, and he says the same thing has happened in the USA and Britain. Remember, he's writing in 1970s, so he says, when these nations, uh, specifically the USA and, and Britain, were at the height of their glory, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, and Cambridge seemed to meet their needs. Now, almost every city has its university. And of course, you've seen, we see now even more and more this idea that everyone needs a university degree, everyone. Um, the ambition of the young, once engaged in the pursuit of adventure and military glory, and then in the desire of the accumulation of wealth, now turns to the acquisition of academic honors. Now, uh, he talks about some of the effects of this age of intellect, um, and they're not bad. So he's not judging these as it's kind of. When I read it, it kind of sounds kind of sounds judgy. He's like, oh, there's, they've lost their honor and their patriotism, blah blah blah. And you can totally take that in a judgy way, especially from a guy who was in the military for his life. But um, he points out that it's during this age of intellect when there's massive advances in science, 
um, a lot of uh, interesting art, like a lot of great advances happen. He's, he, and he makes a point of saying this is not necessarily, um, this isn't necessarily bad. This is not all bad, um, but this is a stage that happens. Um, and he also talks about debate and argument and, quote, incessant talking. I guess mea culpa on that one. He writes, men are interminably different and intellectual arguments rarely lead to agreement. Sound familiar? I guess in, unless you're in the knitting world, in which sure, I'm sure everything's fine. Um, Thus public affairs drift from bad to worse amid an, in, an unceasing cacophony of argument. But this constant dedication to discussion seems to destroy the power of action. Amid a babble of talk, the ship drifts onto the rocks. He also says the most dangerous byproduct of the age of intellect is the unconscious growth of the idea that the human brain can solve the problems of the world. Um, and he says this is just patently untrue even on low levels. And he, he says like even in a, he says a local bowls club or ladies luncheon club, I guess those were around in the 70s, uh, requires for its survival a measure of self-sacrifice and service on the part of its members. In a wider national sphere, the survival of the nation depends basically on the loyalty and self-sacrifice of the citizens, the impression that the situation can be saved by mental cleverness without unselfishness or human self-dedication can only lead to collapse. Um, and he also says another, another symptom here is, this is, you'll like this, uh, the intensification of internal political hatreds. Hmm. Uh, and he, he says this is particularly remarkable because Quote, one would have expected that when the survival of the nation become, became precarious, political factions would drop their rivalry and stand shoulder to shoulder to save their country, right? You think like, oh, they'll, they'll unite against a common enemy. But he writes, on the contrary, internal rival rivalries become more acute and the nation becomes weaker, which leads us to the final depressing stage. Um, by the way, Nicole of the Mountain People in... Chat says, incessant talking equals Twitter. Yes. Yes, it does. Or this show. Uh, incessant talking. <laughs> so uh, this leads us to the last stage. The last stage is decadence. What a lovely word, decadence. I kind of like that word. Reminds me of vampires. All right. So we've got this defensiveness is really now entrenched because we're, we're, at this point, we're trying to preserve the wealth. Um, and there seems to be, uh, so that there's still this maybe even increased um, sense of defensiveness in the age of decadence. Um, and there's a lot of materialism. He talks about the decline of religion. Again, as an atheist, uh, I'm not a fan of religion, but if we look out, we can certainly see that religion has declined uh, in the West recently. He also talks about um, an influx of foreigners. And if you read the essay, there's, this is the kind of essay that uh, people could, could extract one or two sentences from and accuse him of being a racist and bigot and everything else. But he's very careful in this essay to say um, foreigners aren't any uh, less than whatever the native population is. Remember, he's not just talking about white uh, empires. He's looking at empires throughout history, and so foreigners are sometimes white, uh, and it's the and it's the the empire that's that's non-white. Um, but he's, he talks about the influx of foreigners, and he says that the issue is not that they are um, 
worse than, than the empire people or less than in any way, but that they generally are different. They have different traditions, different customs, um, and that weakens the nation. And he talks about um, an influx of foreigners being something that uh, repeatedly happens in the age of decadence. And then he talks about a sense of pessimism coupled with frivolity. I read this quote the other day, but I'm going to read it again because... Uh, as those of you who know, who are in chat and are listening later know, uh, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon and this, uh, this really resonates with me. So he says, he writes, as the nation declines in power and wealth, a universal pessimism gradually pervades the people. There's a guy mowing my lawn literally right outside the window, so I'm sorry if you hear that. Can't help it. Anyway, uh, universal pessimism gradually pervades the people and itself hastens the decline. This is nothing, uh, there is nothing succeeds that like success, and in the age of conquest and commerce, the nation was carried triumphantly onwards on the wave of its own self-confidence. So he's, he's talking about this pessimism. Then he writes, frivolity is the frequent companion of pessimism. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The resemblance between various declining nations in this respect is truly inspiring. The Roman mob, as we have seen, demanded free meals and public games. Gladiatorial shows, chariot races, and athletic events were their passion. In the Byzantine Empire, the rivalries of the Greens and the Blues in the Hippodrome attained the importance of a major crisis. Judging by the time and space allotted to them in the press and television, again, this is 1970s, football and baseball are the activities which today chiefly interest the public in Britain and the United States, respectively. The heroes of declining nations are always the same, the athlete, the singer, or the actor. The word celebrity today is used to designate a comedian or a football player, not a statesman, a general, or a literary genius. One of the other things that marks the, uh, one of the other things that marks the uh, age of decadence is uh, the welfare state. So um, he talks about he talks about the welfare state being expanding, and I think I already mentioned the weakness of religion. I've got a, just a note here, uh, so I want to make sure I mention that. Someone in chat says this sounds like Ecclesiastes, a little bit, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm not super. I don't remember Ecclesiastes well, but uh, it definitely sounds like the Bible. Um, okay, he's got this example that I that resonated with me because it's from 861, and it's about the decline. Uh, of an, the Arab Empire, Assyria, in 861. And um, I, this is just fascinating, fascinating to me. Um, quote, the works of contemporary historians of Baghdad in the early 10th century are still available. They deeply deplored the degeneracy of the times in which they lived, emphasizing particularly the indifference to religion, the increasing materialism, and the laxity of sexual morals. They lamented also the corruption of the officials of the government and the fact that politicians always seemed to amass large fortunes while they were in office. Hmm. The Bernie's a millionaire. The historians commented bitterly on the extraordinary influence acquired by popular singers over young people, resulting in a decline in sexual morality. The pop singers of Baghdad, remember, we're talking, these are, <laughs> this is the decline that started in 861, right? The pop singers of Baghdad accompanied their erotic songs on the lute, an instrument resembling the modern guitar. In the second half of the 10th century, as a result, much obscene sexual language came increasingly into use, such as would not have been tolerated in an earlier age. Several caliphs issued orders banning pop singers from the capital, but within a few years, 
they always returned. Uh, I just found that uh, I just found that incredible that this was written about <laughs> something that happened in the ninth uh, ninth century. So. One important thing to note here is that uh, the decadence that he's talking about is um, what he's saying is the, quote, disintegration of a system, not its members. So he talks about if you are a member of this decadent society, even if you have the habits of the decadent society, if you were to be extracted and you move to another society, which is not in the phase of decadence, you very readily adjust and no longer have the features of the decadence, the, the, the behaviors and habits of a decadent uh, lifestyle. He also says that the, the decadence is not physical. I'm going to quote here. Neither is decadence physical. The citizens of nations in decline are sometimes described as too physically emasculated to be able to bear hardship or make great efforts. This does not seem to be a true picture. Citizens of great nations in decadence are normally physically larger and stronger than those of their barbarian invaders. Decadence is a moral and spiritual disease, resulting from too long a period of wealth and power, producing cynicism, decline of religion, pessimism, and frivolity. The citizens of such a nation will no longer make an effort to save themselves because they are not convinced that anything in life is worth saving, which he doesn't say here, but that's nihilism. Uh, that's nihilism. So. That's that's the overview of his uh, that's the overview of his fate of empires article. Um, I wanted to share it with you because it's really been informing a lot of my thought lately. Obviously, one of the things that I'm thinking about is where are we? And to be clear, just for people who maybe forgot their basic history or are bad at math, six years from now is the 250th anniversary of the United States. So we are right at the 250 mark. Um, and we are also, as far as I can tell, we have every single symptom of the age of decadence. I don't see one that we don't have. Um, so it's pretty clear what cycle we're in um, or you know, where, what phase we're in here. The other question I ask myself, is, is this inevitable? Can we, can we stop this? Right? That's an obvious question to ask. Uh, maybe. I'm also reaching the conclusion that I, I wouldn't count on being able to stop it. That doesn't seem very rational. Maybe we should try, but it seems it seems kind of foolhardy to assume that we're going to be able to stop uh, a cycle that has happened over and over again in history, and certainly which seems inevitable. If you're someone like me who's been uh, very focused on individualism and, and freedom and uh, individual rights and... Uh, reason um you know the u.s has been in slow decline for decades and just continue nothing's better now than when i was a kid in terms of the size of the government the uh the power of the government the uh i guess maybe there are a few things culturally are better i we're more accepting of um some things that maybe we we weren't uh, when i was younger but in general this is a, a clear decline and so Without being too pessimistic, which is a mark of the last stage, uh, the question that I've been asking myself is like, well, what does this mean? What like, what do we do if this if we are in decline and we can't stop it? Which is likely, doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But um, what do we do? And uh, 
I think this. I think the answer is. By the way, certainly. I, I also just want to say this as a as an introspective, an attempt to be introspective. I recognize myself in the intellectualism, like my my tendency to be less action oriented and more in my head and more intellectual and and reading things and and less action oriented, um, more just wanting to be thinking about stuff. And I don't think there's necessarily anything bad with that generally, but it's incompatible with. Uh, you know, the outburst stage, for example. And when I think of, which we're not in, we are in, we are in decadence, I'm pretty sure. Um, but when I think about what to do, I think, well, maybe we need to be preparing ourselves as individuals because we can control our own lives. We can't control society. Um, we can't, you know, even if this podcast grew to be enormous, uh, we, can't, we can't control culture. So what do we do? And, and I think the answer is, we control our own lives, and maybe we prepare to be more, to, to have more qualities uh, of maybe not all the qualities of the outburst stage, but be prepared to live in something closer to an outburst stage. Um, probably not, uh, not our outburst, but someone else's outburst. So more, you know, prepare to be poorer, more hardy, more enterprising, more action-oriented, um, maybe a little bit more aggressive. Uh, I don't know. I think I, to me, that's really the only answer. I'm certainly, I've been, you know, we haven't really talked about, I don't think I ever really talked about the book Anti-Fragile, which, no, which is no one has read, uh, you should read. We could do it for book club sometime, I guess. But uh, AZ Gardner says, prepping. Uh, Nicole Pratt says, teach your kids to shoot. Uh, I love you both. Yes, you're both correct. And I, I hope that you're both moms. I know one of you is a mom. Um, but yeah, I mean, what what we're doing, uh, I think one of the most important things, one of the most important prepping things, actually, is is a community. Because you need a community, like, it's really hard to live by yourself completely. You do need a community of support. So um, something that a lot of preppers forget, because they, want, they have this image of being in isolation all the time, that's great, but building a community is helpful. Um, and then all the other things prepping is helpful as well. Um, and so, but it, I mentioned the book Anti-Fragile. It makes me think of the book Anti-Fragile. If you haven't read it, the idea is that there are these black swan events. Um, Nassim Tlaib wrote it. And there's, there's these black swan events, which are basically these unpredictable events in life. And you can structure your life in a way that is very fragile to the occurrence of black swan events. Um, or you can structure your life in a way which is what he calls anti-fragile, in which the black swan event, you actually could benefit from the black swan event. Things actually get better. And um, I think that's an important mindset. I, this is not the right time to go into how to do that. We can, If you guys are interested, we can have another discussion about anti-fragile another day. But, you know, I think that's, I think to me, yeah, are we, are we building a chicken coop in the backyard and growing chickens? Yes. Uh, does the whole family go to the gun range? Absolutely, the whole family goes to the gun range. Uh, are we planning on <laughs> hiding in the house all by ourselves? No. Uh, we are actively looking for uh, community. It'll probably mean moving, and uh, you know that might seem that might seem dramatic. The truth is, we don't know when things fall actually, and we don't know what the fall will look like. It could be a very smooth transition to some other. Um, system, but it's pretty clear to me that the current system as it exists right now uh, is doomed. So, all right. Uh, 
I think that's it. Unless anyone else has anything you guys want to talk about, um, I think this is a pretty good, pretty good length. Uh, even with a <laughs> Epistavist writes, even with a strong community, always have a bug out plan. Yes, yes, always have a bug out plan. Um, you can have a bug out bag in your car, which we we used to actually. The bug out bag's not in the car right now, so maybe I should move it back. But uh, yeah. I would, I would definitely, I would definitely recommend that. Wombat of Doom is asking recommended reading materials for what? For survival type things, Wombat, or for, um, like for prepping stuff. I'm not sure what you mean exactly, uh, but there we go. Oh, thanks. Um, Nicole Pratt wants to talk about. Uh, she just gave us a super check, and she wants to talk about Project 1619. I will do that. Uh, I will. We will do that soon. I'm not going to do it without Carrie because I know she wants to talk about it. But we will absolutely talk about 1619, Nicole. Um, so, yes, we, we will do that. Uh, Wombat of Doom says, "For today's topic, I came in late." Oh, reading materials for today's topic. Yeah. So I was just reading. Uh, I was just going through a. For those who came in late, I was just going through an article by Sir John Glubb. Uh, it's his name. It was written in the 70s. It's a Pretty quick read. Um, there, I'm sure there's more extensive work I could do. I'm not a historian. Uh, I don't have a great command of history, so I'm relying on summaries like this guy's. Um, but I will put a link to the uh, PDF in the description in the show notes here so you can go find it. But it's available online if you look for Sir, Sir John Glove, The Fate of Empires, and search for survival. So... Um, and Epistavist mentions, if you're in a heavy, heavy urban city, you can get the local sewer system plans from a local library. And if things get really bad, and you really need to avoid detection. Yes, or you could leave. Uh, I'm not a big major city fan anymore, although I was at some point in my life. Uh, major cities generally have a couple days of food, um, and that's it. And then things go chaotic. So, Tom says to read Plato and Aristotle. Yes, uh, that, that, I, that I will second. All right, well, thanks, everyone. Um, sorry that Carrie wasn't around today, but hopefully it was interesting enough. And I do expect for her to return tomorrow, so you won't have to deal with my face for too much. At least my face was moving today, unlike yesterday, in which it was a still image. So we're, we've upgraded. <laughs> so have a good day, everyone, and we'll see you tomorrow.